Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in an authentic conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Now, how do you build an AI startup? What's different about an AI startup compared to a normal tech startup? How do you get VCs to come to you instead of chasing them? What is the future of video content and video marketing? Well, our guest today is Vikram Chalana, founder and CEO of Pictory.ai. If you care about the future of AI, startups, and marketing, you're going to love this episode. Now, as work has become increasingly native digital, people are using Zoom for communication and Slack for collaboration, but have no apps for human connection. Until now. Airspeed has created the first collection of apps that work inside Slack to bring people and teams together on a personal level. From simple introductions to celebrating birthdays and sharing interests to virtual chats and hangouts. Airspeed's free Slack apps are used by leading companies like Adobe, Dow Jones, Lockheed Martin, Rivian, and thousands more. About 8 out of 10 employees, or 82%, say they have felt lonely at work and 65% of workers say they feel less connected to their co-workers. Employee disconnection is one of the main drivers of voluntary turnover, and the Wall Street Journal says that employee loneliness is costing U.S. companies up to $406 billion a year. Not anymore. Go to GetAirspeed.com and learn how to produce a breakthrough in business results by connecting in new, powerful ways. That's GetAirspeed.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Is that your studio? It sure is, yeah. Like you play guitar and stuff, you create music? Uh, I grew up playing music. Uh, my father's a musician. Uh, two of my uncles were musicians. Nice. I love music. I went to a fine arts school. And so um, music is my happy place. Super, super. And I learned years ago that with your office or now studio, you know, it's great to have an environment that makes you happy, that, that kind of puts you in a good place. You know, yeah. if you want to do innovative, creative work, then create a physical space that kind of makes you happy. And so I, I, I literally look forward to being in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, me too. I've kind of, with this pandemic work from home, we're all kind of created our nice spaces. I look out into a nice window with a lot of green outside and, and uh, that, I think that triggers happy for me. Right. It's yeah. Green. green. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I have trees outside the oceans right there and, yeah, and it's interesting. I think there's been a lot of backlash, of course, and a lot of discussion about um, virtual work and work from home and work from anywhere and all these sorts of things. I, I think when the dust settles, my spider senses are that um, working from, from home for a disproportionate number of people is going to prove to be highly advantageous. I have to agree, yeah. Because I think when you take commutes out of the mix for people – and you allow them to be in environments that make them happy and comfortable and you allow them to go have, you know, lunch with their kid or take their kid to whatever or pick their kid up from whatever or all those sorts of things. Uh, those are very powerful things. Yeah. And someone as someone building a startup, I, one of the things I'm realizing is, is the power of being able to hire talent anywhere, anywhere in the world. And I'm, I'm really loving it. Like, I'm interviewing a Ukrainian customer service head tomorrow, and I am so excited. Like, you know, she would be a really good hire, and uh, yeah. And uh, isn't it amazing that today um, we don't have to give much thought, if any thought, to where anybody is? Yeah, exactly. And just all the online media, the Slack and Zoom, and it just makes it all so easy. Yeah. And the reality is, look, would I love to sit down for a beer with you or a coffee or whatever in person and shake hands and give you a hug and all that kind of good stuff? Of course, human beings always want to be physically yeah. near each other. But the reality is, if we had to wait until that was possible, um, 
you know, what what part of the country are you in right now? I'm in the Seattle area. Yeah, but okay. I'll be yeah, I'll be in the Bay Area. I think you're in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, I'm in Santa or, Cruz. Okay, cool. Oh, Santa Cruz, nice. Super yes. nice. That's the beach. Yeah, it, okay. that is the beach. It's the quintessential yeah. California beach town with all of the. Yeah good and all of the quirky and weird that comes with it <laughs> <laughs> super cool are you going to sastra next week no i don't do that stuff um because okay, okay. you know it's funny I, i'm i'm what's called an introverted extrovert so i'm an extrovert but i have a strong introvert side and i and i always hated schmoozing and boozing and cruising and of course i did it as a younger man you got to get out there and build relationships and do all that stuff but, um, yeah, I don't go to events unless I'm speaking at them. I, I'd rather consume the content online. And I, yeah, if, yeah. if there's not a re like, I'm not somebody who's going to come up to you at a fucking thing and go, hi, I'm Christopher, how are you? It's just, it's not my thing. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I and get also, it. I don't know, there's something there, that, I, what's the name of that guy who started that, who started Sastra? Uh, Jason, Jason Lemkin. He, or he at least he's one of the the ones. Who, yeah, I'm sure there's more. Yeah, I don't know. Some of the I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Not going. But um, I hope it's a great event for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a I got a pass from one of my vendors, and I was like, I it's not too far. Bay Area is a good flight. I, I use this opportunity to meet other people I know, and it'd be good. Yeah, I think it's a good time. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is the number of SaaS cloud slash AI events. I mean, I saw a posting on Twitter that there were, I think there were over 30 AI events in the month of July alone in San Francisco. And so there is a, you know, it's for all the negativity in the media and all that stuff, there is a, a strong element that has a, a sense of uh, a birth of something very, very big happening right here that is somewhat... Uh, reminiscent of the dot-com era. N not quite the insanity, um, but there's a frothiness that I think is very healthy happening right now. I, I agree. I see it. I, the number of VC calls I get, I see it. So what kind of VC calls do you get, Vikram? A lot of people wanting to write big checks. Uh, again, I, I haven't I've been through a couple of those cycles before uh, where I've talked to a lot of VCs and uh, and it's a lot of effort um, and ends up playing out uh, differently from what you expected. So I'm like, I'm taking everything with a grain of salt, but everybody wants to invest in AI and, and kind of what we're doing right now. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's fun to be the center of attention. But at the same time, I, I think one of my advisors said they're, they're selling money to you at, at huge interest rates and stuff. So you're, um, of course, they're interested. Um, and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking everything with a grain of salt right now. It is interesting. I, 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 literally just before we started, got off a call with a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur CEO and they, uh, very hot space AI as well. And they've raised about roughly 5 million in a seed. So I think very similar to you folks. Similar, yep. And he was sharing with me, Vikram, that that exact thing is happening to him. And we were talking about how to deal with the VC inbound. And in his case, which I'm sure is the, the situation you're finding yourself, it's not like a piece of shit VC.com calling. It's very serious, huge track record, huge fun, huge reputation, huge, huge, you know, brand names reaching out, um, wanting to invest. And so we're having the discussion and I, I, I'm pushing back on him saying, we have $5 million. Why do we need to take more dilution now? Why do we need more money? Why don't we wait until we get further along, take less dilution, i.e. raise money at a higher valuation? And he and I are having this push-pull as to, you know, do we or don't we need to earn money? Uh, do, do we or don't we need to raise more money? And if we do, why? And if we do, why are we taking it now at a lesser value than if we waited six months or a year? So having this debate. And so... Um, I wonder how you think about those things, Vikram. That's really good. I, I I would love to hear the other side of it too, because I'm 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 on the pushing back side right now, uh, pushing back to three, four months, five months, six months, because uh, we don't need the money. On the other hand, I get advice about you know, hey, when you don't need the money, is the right time to raise money. 
And who knows what the economic uh, climate is going to be six months from now. Right now, your business is growing. Your all the metrics look really good. Do it when the when the sun is shining. Uh, make the hay. Uh, so I'm I'm on the I'm on the conservative side right now. I'm like pushing back, pushing back. But uh, I would love to hear your friend's perspective too. It's like why do we? Why does he want to do it now? So the debate, so he wasn't planning on it. He's been very busy, primarily focused on building product. They have beta customers, um, their pre-revenue. In this case, it's deep, deep tech. Um, the, the founder of the company has a, is a multi-time successful software entrepreneur who's built very powerful, very technical, deep tech stuff. So it's not a fart app. Um, and, um, and so they've raised five million and his point. So I said to him, well, why do we need this money? And his response was a very thoughtful one. And he actually took me through Vikram, a series of things that they would do, whether it's because it's AI, of course, the, the need for compute is very significant, right? And the amount of training data they're um, creating and or ingesting, because in, in this case, uh, they both ingest legacy system data into their data lake that, and transform it to tra- uh, um, training data. Plus, they're also, as a result of the ongoing learning that happens in AI ML, the training data creates learnings on top of it, which turns into more training data. Plus, in their case, they're acting as a data lake. They're bringing in legacy data from a whole bunch of different systems to create kind of a new, if you will, uh, single source of truth in the domain, they're, they're, the category they're operating in. And so his his argument to me was, well, given the fact that the the um, training data is exploding with every new beta customer we bring on board, maybe it's time to really build out the compute capability because AI, as you well know, requires a tremendous amount of compute. So that was essentially what his argument was to me. H- how does that sound to you? Yeah, that sounds in the space that he's in. That sounds. That sounds like a really good reason. Um, for me, I don't really have, I haven't figured out how I would spend the money. It's just kind of funny as an entrepreneur. It's like, okay, um, as a SaaS entrepreneur these days, you can be very capital efficient as we have been. Uh, and uh, it's, um, I, I, I'm still trying to figure out, okay, if we had the money, how would we use it? Because we're not a foundational model company. Uh, and I'm not building foundational models. I'm not building uh, large training sets. But I know that's something that we want to be doing. I, I know that's something that uh, we want to invest in in deeper tech than what we have. So, so those are things that that are, I'm just playing out in my in my head. Okay, how how are we gonna spend this money um, if we had it? And we have like my my philosophy on pre-revenue versus post revenue is always been post revenue i think i'm like i'm off, off the bench that if you're not embarrassed about the product you've launched you've waited too long um so i always launch things that i'm really embarrassed about even two years later <laughs> well i never encourage being purposely embarrassed about your product but I, I understand the point yeah um you know there's another interesting cautionary tale here and i find myself having this discussion with a bunch of entrepreneurs, particularly in AI and, and, and some of the adjacent super hot mega categories right now, which is if you look back just a few years ago, you look at um, tech companies, software companies that raised in, let's just call it the 2020 timeframe, um, somewhere in there. A lot of them are in a really fucked up situation today, which is they raised money at what can only be described as sort of private IPO levels, $8 billion, $10 billion or more, $5 billion, whatever the numbers were, far beyond what was normal or politely uh, described as priced for perfection. And, you know, I know plenty of companies that raise money at very high levels in that time frame, 2020, 2021 in there, that today are actually permanently fucked. Because although they have cash, their companies are worth half or less, which means the vast majority of their employees are underwater. And so employees are leaving and the new employees are getting options at the new price, but that's creating a lot of problems with the old employees. 
and they're staring down, do we have to do a massive recap? Or you know, how do we deal with the fact that we raised money at a massive number and today we're worth half or less than half of that? And, you know, as a public company, when your stock goes up and down, it can feel bad, it can hurt and so forth and so on. And it has implications. Um, but you sort of know when you go public that you're going to have fluctuation, particularly as an earlier stage high growth company. This is not news. However, we've all been trained that in the private markets, you always, the valuation slash market cap always needs to go up. And these companies who are caught in these massive uh, takedowns now, um, you know, some of them have nothing wrong with their products or technology or category, but the reason their, their cap table is all fucked up and they're upside down. And um, it's really going to cause it. It's really causing a very big problem in the company. And so I'm leading to a question, Vikram, which is as somebody who's now being courted by the VCs, because you're the you're the good looking dude at the dance. Um, how do you think about that trade off between you know the obvious desire to raise money at the highest valuation so that you can make the mo- get the most for the least uh, amount of equity? But at the same time, um, we saw it in the dot com era and we certainly have seen it recently. Whereas if you take that philosophy to the nth degree, bad things can happen. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I, I lean conservative on, on all these things because I, uh, I, I'm, I'm used to bootstrapping businesses. Uh, my previous company that I built, uh, we bootstrapped for the first five years, didn't raise a single amount of capital. You build capital efficient companies and you, uh, and, and I mean, we, we got it to about $5 million in revenue without raising any any outside capital. And then we raised uh, a, uh, a growth equity round because then you start getting calls from different kinds of VCs. Yeah. And then and then you and then we grew from five to 50 based on on growth on that, on that growth equity base. So I feel like, you know, you have to live up to that valuation, whatever valuation you get you want to raise money at, you should be able to picture it in the next couple of years. So living up to that valuation. And, and I feel people raise too much money at too high of valuation that there's no hope that they can live up to that. It's just, it feels, it feels bad. Um, There are really smart entrepreneurs who will do it for themselves. They raise secondary money along the way. (laughs) That's a, that's a whole different, uh, reason to do it but if you're doing it for the right reasons i don't think you should you should overvalue your business uh and if it means doing smaller rounds uh to preserve the equity and the dilution that's how it is you just build a capital efficient business it's amazing you say that because there's another entrepreneur i talked to earlier this week um and that's exactly what they did. They they raised money at very uh, good valuations, but they never let it run like crazy. Like some of the companies kind of in and around them let it run. Like they could have raised money at much higher rates uh, when they did their last round. I think in this case, the last round was uh, tail end of 2021, just, sort of just before the wheels started to get weird. Uh, and valuations started to come down. They did a good size round. I can't remember exactly. It might have been twenty million. It was something like that. Um, but they did it at a healthy valuation, f- for sure. But like you, this entrepreneur CEO, as a multi-time entrepreneur CEO, understands the game and didn't redline it. That is to say, didn't drive the value as high as maybe he could have. Um, and today is sitting there with. A premium market cap, but not an insane one as a private company. Yep. So let me ask you this question. There's a real interesting sort of dichotomy or bifurcation I'm, I'm feeling right now, which is I talk to entrepreneurs who are not AI entrepreneurs that are early stage, and they're having a hard time getting arrested on Sand Hill Road. Nobody returns their calls. Nobody, you know, you never call, you never write. Santa doesn't respond to the letters. Um, and they're like, how the fuck do I get funded? Because I'm not an AI company. Nobody even wants to talk to me. And then there's you and, of course, a whole bunch of others where, you know, the VCs are banging on your front door. And so uh, tell me a little bit of how you think about getting VCs to come to you versus you having to go to VCs. 
Yeah, I've been on the boats. I've been on both sides. I've had multiple occasions where we seas were knocking at our door, and I've had occasions where where I had to go borrow and beg uh, at Sand Hill Road or other places. But the I think my my learning throughout this process has been focus on the more important thing, which is building your business rather than raising money. I mean, if you're going to spend time on doing activities that that you're doing for free anyway, just spend time on building product, building sales, going talking to customers. Once you have that, you get the respect that, that you deserve. That's why I I go going going back to the previous thing I said, I launch the product early even if it's not fully ready because you start showing traction, you start showing um revenues or users or whatever traction means to you but uh, yeah and that's what that's what every investor is looking for i mean there's there's no news in in here that's that's surprising it's interesting that you say that there's another uh, entrepreneur uh, i've been working with for a little bit and um the company's basically been in creation slash discovery mode for their two plus years raised a seed round healthy seed round smart entrepreneur like yourself, very parsimonious on expenses, great, great small team. And, um, and so now getting ready to go out for the seed. And, um, it's interesting because the company's pre-revenue in this case, like, like the other one I mentioned. Um, but this entrepreneur and the team has been very smart around both, uh, let's just call it traditional user, uh, consumption engagement type metrics and and also kind of creating some new metrics to think about how the growth of their their users customers is so they're a hundred percent pre revenue, but they have I don't know what the number is but I mean tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands I'm not sure of users and they've gotten tremendous amount of feedback from them at tremendous amount of companies so anyway the point being now they're ready to go raise a proper Series A totally pre revenue. But to your point, Vikram, they've done exactly what you just described, which is they focused on customers. They focused on real problems. They focused on solving those problems in radically different ways. And now they have a lot of user customer adoption traction. And even with no revenue, people look at the numbers. That is to say the metrics, the engagement, the usage, all of those sorts of kind of domain of numbers. Yep. And investors really want to give this, this company money. Yes, that's it. That's it. It's traction. Yeah, I think that's at the end of the day. And and sometimes it's also, like, of course, that's not the only thing because um, I have a friend who's part of YC who just got into YC and and they don't have anything, but there are people willing to give you money because uh, you're part of YC. You've already got, gone through that the, a great vetting process that they had. Well, and, you know, I think... Uh... Certainly, I take my hat off to YC. I mean, what an incredible job. And there's been some controversy and there's been this and there's been that. But the reality is um, the idea of creating incubators has been around for a very, very long time. There was a huge push for them in the 90s. Many incubators did not succeed back then, as you well know. Uh, A few did, but it it was sort of considered to be, after the dot-com boom, it was sort of considered to be a dead space. Mm-hmm. And of course, why can't why Combinator came up with their own category design? They were educator as well as so they were a hybrid school as well as incubator as well as kind of CBC. How you know? So it was a different Venn diagram category design, but in a similar vein. And you know, Paul Graham and uh, the team. I mean, what they've done is is truly. I mean, it's extraordinary. And if you do get into YC, Amazing. it does mean something. It really does. Yeah. And the the fire hose through which I see them drinking, it's it's insane. Like the amount of learning that happens in those uh, 10 weeks or whatever they're part of it, it it's crazy. I'm like, oh, I need to be part of that too at some point, but I'm too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about your company. Uh, so there's a number of reasons I wanted to chat. One of them was, you know, my partner in crime, Katrina Kirsch, uh, at Category Pirates, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to Eddie, went off and started to use your technology kind of as an experiment with some of our stuff. 
And and I looked at it and went, wow, this is really cool. What the fuck is this, <laughs> right? And that's sort of how you ended up in our Category Pirates newsletter and things along those lines. And then, of course, I, I did a little digging on you and you reached out and that was very cool. And And so tell me a little bit about the company and in particular – the AI companies that get a lot of attention are obviously OpenAI and a lot of the big players, you know, Microsoft, Google, and Baird, and da 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 da. And yet there are thousands of AI startups right now that are doing incredibly innovative things, and you guys are one of them. So, so tell me what it's like to be an AI startup, and then let's talk specifically about what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's really funny. Um, I was in a marketing meetup in Seattle a couple of weeks ago and uh, just a bunch of CMOs and heads of marketing and, and stuff. And, uh, and I told them that we started this AI company in 2019 and they go, did AI exist back then? <laughs> a lot of people still think AI came, started in after chat GPT. That was the birth of AI. But uh, some people need to do a little bit of their uh, computer history <laughs> a little <laughs> research. A little bit, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, I've spent decades in the machine learning, neural networks, AI space, and and it's it's fascinating to see how how this is this has grown. Um, but so so even when we were starting out, the idea was you know this video creation, video editing is it's a pain it's a painful part of a lot of people want to do videos but they can't because they don't want to learn how this adobe premiere and all this other final cut pro those really the tools that are designed for professional designers not not for the end users and and i like i kept looking for a video tool as a part of an office tool set and it never arrived there was no there was PowerPoint and the, there was Excel and Word, but there was no video tool. And I, I would love for there to be a, a video tool in that in that in that suite. Um, anyway, that was kind of the and, and there was a lot of AI coming out in 2019. There was BERT and all these other models that uh, Google had come out with, and they were fantastic. Transformers was just hitting the the stage, and I was like, you know, there has to be a way that we can use AI to help solve that exact problem of, of video creation, video editing. Uh, and that's uh, that was kind of where we how we started because I see the writing on the wall. I know you're not doing videos on your podcast today, but it's only a matter of time. You're gonna be you're gonna be doing a video podcast soon. Um, and uh, and we're all gonna we're all gonna live in the world of video. We want it or not. Short videos are gonna be the the thing that is that's Getting a I mean, lot of attention. Uh, aren't they everywhere. already? I mean, that's yep. what mo- TikTok is. What more evidence do you need than TikTok? Yep, exactly. And companies are struggling to get into the short video space, right? Most businesses are, are struggling to get in because it's just a hard problem. I mean, consumers have figured it out, but businesses are still are still trying to do their content marketing with text. Well, and listen, on a personal level, I live in the long form text world. So I understand the radical bias of that because I have it. Um, At the same time, I'm not an idiot and um, I'm conversant in what is the forefront of marketing. And here's the thing that most traditional marketers don't understand about video. One 20 second video can drive a hundred million dollars in revenue. One 20-second video can cause a retail location that on a regular Saturday has three, 400 people at it to have 2,000 people show up. And I could go on, but the right video can cause a radical increase in revenue. And, and, and I think a lot of people in the B2C space, in the digital space, understand this. It's not just, oh, how do we go viral on the internet and all the sort of Gary VD stupid shit? But how do you do how do you deliver content in such a radically compelling way, in an educational, inspiring, motivational way that drives a breakthrough in near-term revenue? There are people doing that right now. 
And there are a lot of people discounting it. It's not just a magic trick with some bullshit, you know, influencer crap. It's real work that's being done by real companies to produce real revenue. And so how do you want the world, uh, Vikram, to think about uh, video and in particular short form video? Yeah, so I and the particular world that I want to influence is the business world, people who are like, you know, because they haven't adopted videos yet as consumers have. But uh, but if I'm in a B2B space, I want to, I'm doing content marketing. Obviously, I'm spending a lot of time on content marketing, writing blogs, get trying to raise my SEO profile. But I want people to think of videos as a key part of their content strategy, short videos specifically. And uh, think of channels that, that you may not think about, like, TikTok and and Instagram reels and and stuff and I I've, I've seen for our own business and and the viral video example that you gave I mean we've had that moment when ChatGPT came out uh, in November we had we had a video that our customer created that went viral it was exactly a 20 second video that basically has 10x our business uh, is just that one video so so we were kind of I'm I'm living that example uh, but the other bit I tell tell people is like make sure video is key part of your content strategy, but also videos at high frequency. Because one of the things that that people are afraid of for videos is I have to get a production crew, I have to think about the the, the perfect script, I have to get actors, I have to do all this stuff, and and it doesn't have to be that way. There's many other ways to create videos. But but you want to create them at higher frequency than once a year or once every two years. So you want to you want to have videos as a part of your social media strategy, as part of your YouTube channel, just constantly and repurpose stuff. Like you have recordings of webinars, you can create clips from it. You have uh, blogs, you can create videos from blogs. You have a story that you can tell. You can create videos based on that, and that's kind of exactly what I'm what we're trying to do. And and I don't think long form goes away because I see huge value in your your newsletters, your Substack uh, uh, letters that I read on Category Pirates. I see huge value and I spend a lot of time consuming that long form content. Um, but a, vid- a short video can can be the hook that grabs me into the long form content. And that's that's how I see the use of this high frequency videos. And it has to be high frequency because if I post something on LinkedIn, the likelihood that you will see it is minuscule. Even though we're first degree connection on it, it's like it shows up on five percent of our my followers feed, or even less. So it's not going to show up at some point. But if I'm posting something every day, um, you will see something from me. Well, and this is a side note. I've talked to a bunch of people about this. Does anybody that you know or you yourself understand what the change was in the LinkedIn? Uh, algorithm of late that caused everybody's numbers to go down by two thirds or more worse. <laughs> I have no idea. I know it's been it's been constantly changing over time, and it's been less and less. Well, it's been you know, it, it, as somebody who's been around on all these things for a long time, it's sort of interesting to see all of these platforms go through almost the same trajectory, right? And um, and to your point on ChatGPT, I think. My sense, and I don't have any inside information, although I do know executives at LinkedIn, but they don't tell me this shit. They don't think they tell anybody this shit. But what happens with these platforms is as the users and content increase, they decrease their reach for their content creators. Um, and it's just what happens over time, right? And um, the numbers are amazing. I, I, I had, um, I, I suck on Twitter. And I've sucked on Twitter for a long time. Uh, and I have some interesting followers on Twitter. And uh, my greatest follower, this is my greatest achievement in, in social media, the Foo Fighters follow me on Twitter. I have no oh, idea why. Awesome. I love them. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> I, have, I love them. It makes no sense, but I love them. Anyway, a little bit ago, uh, the, the famous wrestler, uh, John Cena, randomly followed me on Twitter. Again, no idea why. And he's got, let me see if I can figure this out. Um, Christopher, to use your phrase, you're legendary, man. So <laughs> <laughs> they are following you because of that. 
No, I'm, the funny thing is on Twitter, I, I suck. I, I I don't go anywhere. I like I have no nothing on Twitter. Uh, I'm not. A th- I'm. I don't. I'm not a person really on Twitter. Okay, so John's got 14.1 million followers, and here's the interesting thing. And I noticed this, you know, after after he caught my attention on Twitter. So he's got 14 million followers. Here's his. Uh, okay, so his tweet from four hours ago, 14 million followers. Guess what the view count on it is? Four million? 485,000. Oh, that's it? That's wow. it. And then you go down. So I go down to, okay, so this is uh, uh, four or five days ago. This one's at 983,000. So we call that a million. Here's one at 595. Here's another one at 500, another one at 500, another one at 500, 650, 500, 775. Anyway, the point being, to your point, this is a guy with 14 million followers and a big tweet for him is a million views. Yeah. So the algorithms sort of screw us all in the end or, or diminish us all in the end. And yeah. so yeah. I guess this is leading me to a question, which is, um, how much more effective is video than text in general from a consumption perspective? So I've seen numbers ranging anywhere from, you know, 10x to 18x, 80x. So it's it's a huge difference. But again, it depends on kind of who you ask, who did the study and, and stuff. But in general, there is a high much higher effectivity of posting video versus um, image or or text. Again, it, it's a it's a gross generalization. Your video has to be compelling, and sometimes people make really nice images that that uh, that grab attention. Um, but uh, but broad video is does get more attention. Yes. So let me share this strain of thought with you and see if this fits. Um, so if I think about Canva, Figma, these kinds of companies where um, the category has often been referred to as quote unquote, no code. Although that's it, it, only techies would come up with such a category, of course. And what those companies clearly have been trying to do and are continuing to try to do, if you take Canva as a simple example, I think a lot of people use, it used to be you had to hire a designer to design whatever it was, a banner for social media or whatever the fucking thing was, Right. And today, a, a, a non-designer like myself can go there and are we going to produce the high quality stuff? No. But if you need to bang out a quick uh, banner or a quick social or a quickie, whatever, whatever, is going to do an incredible job. And now if you want to get things printed in the IRL, you can do that through them and all this. And so this idea behind quote unquote no code is we go from uh, uh software capabilities for quote-unquote professionals to software capabilities that are highly templatized, that are easily configurable, that non-technical people can use to do, let's just call it 80, 90% the job that historically you had to hire a deeply technical person for, whether that's on software development side or marketing graphic design or whatever the case may be. So in that sense, are you no code for video or how, how do you want me to think about it? Yes, exactly. Um, I, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. We, I use de- different words for it. Democratization of design, democratization of video is another way to see that. Uh, I particularly don't like no code. But in general, that's been the theme of my of victory. But my my career in general, I mean, that actually that creates a lot of businesses, a lot of companies who can take things that were meant for experts to do and allow non-experts to to do uh, again not with 100% effectivity but but you get a job done and uh, and this is what i was getting to high frequency versus high fidelity videos so you know you you won't get the high fidelity videos you won't get the the homepage videos that you might get with if you pay twenty thousand dollars to an agency but but you will get uh, you will get good enough videos that you can post on on social channels and and emails and the like but do it at high higher frequency but that's how i want to think of think of this is as uh I, I often call it canva for video 
Yes. Uh, but, yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's how sometimes I use that. Well, and this model's an interesting one, uh, Vikram, because um, we've lived through the same thing in the writer publishing space, right? So uh, my first book was published through a traditional publisher. We had an agent. We did. We got an advance. We did all the stuff, right? Um, I haven't done that since. And since then, we've produced 14 number one bestsellers independent of a major publisher. And, and one of the big changes for us is exactly what you're describing, which is with Category Pirates as a newsletter, what, we started off writing a book. And then as we were working on the book, we were doing primary research and we we're doing all this stuff. And we started to have this feeling like, I, I don't want to wait another year or whatever the fuck to get this. This is too good. We got to share this with people. So we said, well, what if we started writing the book in public as a Substack newsletter. And then, and we do that and we do it very rapidly and we do some basic editing, but we don't do the quality of editing you would do at a major publishing house because we want the ideas in the world. And if we fuck up and use the wrong there or the paragraph or the, you know, whatever the, 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 the commas in the wrong spot, we're much less concerned about that. We're more concerned about being in the flow of the ideas, being in the flow of the research, sharing it with our our, our world, having our world play and participate with us, and and being in this flow of thinking and researching and creating and and feedback and co-creating and all this stuff. And if you those traditional approaches of wanting it to always be perfect get in the way of this sort of very flowy oriented, very real-time oriented, very sort of transparent, open, we're kind of doing this together, back and forth orientation. And it's a very different orientation to whether you want to call it content creation or marketing or some in between. Um, it's yeah. it's a completely different mindset. And, and I'm curious how you react to that. Yeah, I love it. This is actually, this is exactly, I mean, so I, I can see we were brothers from another mother. I mean, it's just like, this is... Uh, this is exactly how your parents I think. made a better looking person than my parents, but uh, yes, keep going. <laughs> yeah, pretty good looking. <laughs> but the, the the same idea we were talking about before, right? I mean, I, if you're not a little bit embarrassed about what you released, you you waited too long, and and just get it out there, get get the feedback from the world, get build it in the community, and then, and I mean, I love this model, by the way, because you're also you also have a paid newsletter i mean that you're actually getting paid to build this this write this book along the way and uh, and that's uh, that's super right so I, I mean this is this is great this is you're thinking exactly how i i think i about building companies building products yeah and the interesting thing on the video side to your point um uh just like writing before and just like uh if you will static images canva before um, without these technologies, for many people who were not technical or not very technical, the barriers to entry were too high. And so you had to create a I, I, listen, I remember back in the day when I was still a CMO, we wanted to do video and we wanted to do video internal training and we wanted to be able to do what we call just in time training. We ended up calling them JITs. And because new products were coming out and all this stuff, and we wanted to be all like in the old days of enterprise B2B, you would quote unquote enable the field twice a year. You'd yeah. do a big kickoff at the beginning of the year and then midway, maybe you'd do something virtual or sometimes you'd bring them back together, but you did two yeah. big enablement things a year. Well, the reality yeah. is you can't do that shit anymore. You've got to be enabling the field, your product managers, your everybody almost daily. And so we had to hire actors, we had to hire a video crew, we had to have bring in all this expertise, we had to do this stuff at great expense. We were very, very early. I'm talking about, you know, uh, 2004, 2005 timeframe. This is very early shit, but it was that important. Well, today, of course, all you need is an iPhone, a, a, good, a, a good script to riff off of, and your technology, and you tell me, but I could drop a quote unquote JIT every day to my Salesforce if I wanted to. You could, yes, absolutely. The chat GPT can help you write that script too, by the way. 
So absolutely. Uh, uh, and and it's kind of the pace of innovation too, right? I mean, you don't do releases at six months, every six months anymore. In the in software industry, I mean, releases go out every two weeks or even sooner if, if, if you have to. And uh, and things change, UI changes, uh, uh, the how how the software works changes. So those training material gets get out of date in two weeks. So you have to do it that fast. So that's a that's a great use case that uh, we'd love for people to look for Pictory for. Uh, that, that's how you want the videos. world to think about Pictory for for that kind of model. Yeah, yep. just high frequency stuff. The other interesting thing I want to bounce off you is. In discussions with marketers, some people view this a little too uh, either ory, if you will, which is, uh, well, I'm either doing this like deep, highly produced, incredibly awesome shit that's, you know, very thoughtful because we're only creating, we want to educate people about this deep, big new technology, carbonulation thing. And if you're not willing to read our 4,332 white page white paper and you're not willing to get into this deep you know then sort of go fuck yourself and 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 the aha of course is the same person who might love to read your 4000 page deep technical white paper on ai carbidingulation also might love your 20 second interesting video and everything in between yes and this is the aha it's not that, oh, well, only stupid people are consuming the quickie videos. No. You and I like quickie fun videos, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Yeah. And you and I like deep, thoughtful, 5,000-word newsletters. You and I like powerful. I mean, I read 30 to 50 books a year, all of which are really, really fucking smart, many of which are, are folks who come on the podcast. You know, so I guess my point is we all like candy. And many of us also like steak and we could even have some candy and steak at the same meal. <laughs> right. I don't want, ca- I don't want steak flavored candy though, but, but yeah, I get, I <laughs> Me get <laughs> but this is the other aha, which is why not experiment across the mediums yeah. and why not play with different formats? Yeah. I was surprised at how much traffic, that one 20 second TikTok video generated for us. And we're not even on TikTok. Like we didn't have a TikTok channel. We didn't have a marketing presence on TikTok. So and and we're we're kind of B2B. We're not even B2C that that way. We're like business to prosumers. So so the assumption was going in that TikTok is more for B2C and and what would B2B audiences care? But but here we are, 10x growth from one 20-second TikTok video. Well, and here's the stupid thing that many B2B marketers have missed for a long time, which is everybody's a C. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Steve Jobs showed us that. Well, Absolutely. Right, and you might be a person in an enterprise responsible for a you know $250 million IT budget, but you also buy gum or coffee or underwear, or, or, you know, you're a consumer, you have a vehicle, you have a home, you have a dishwasher, we're all C's. And so this notion that we're, what, and when, you know, it has to, what works in B2C can't work in B2B. Well, that's just insane. And the other interesting thing that most people don't realize is that if you're in the corporate world today, you have more than a 50% chance likelihood that you are working for a native digital that is to say someone 40 or younger. Yeah. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to be tuned to snippety content, if I could call it that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And this shows up, by the way, Christopher, this shows up in many other various ways too. So in my previous company, we used to do, we had, uh, we were selling to SAP customers. And I don't know if you've ever seen the SAP user interface. Um, it's from the 1980s. Yeah, it looks like it's from the Nixon administration, but keep keep going, yes. It hasn't changed much. It hasn't changed much. It's 2023, it hasn't changed much. And uh, in like, and people are still in like 30 it. fucking years. It hasn't, yeah, yeah. Some things have changed, but it's largely the same thing. And uh, 
and we were like, you're selling to consumers who are used to slick UIs on on uh, iPhone devices, and then they go have to go to work and they have to use that stupid SAP interface, and it's like it's this this combabulation at the worst. And so if I'm, I couldn't agree more and it, it boggles the mind, actually, it, 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 it truly boggles the mind. It just shows that once that shit's installed, it, it's like herpes. It might not kill you, but it's just going to burn an itch forever. It's hard to get rid of. Um, but I digress. So if I was a, if I was a CEO or if I was a CMO and I was thinking, you know, we're behind the eight ball here on video and this is an area for us to innovate and experiment, um, uh, and I and I and I wanted to do it uh, specifically. Let's take let's let's take a marketing use case, and then maybe we can take an internal communication or education use case, and then any other that you think is appropriate. But let's start maybe with the marketing use case. I'm a CMO. I'm a CEO. I want to drive digital revenue, and I want to use video, and I want to use high frequency video, as you're describing, um, to to do that. How, how how do you suggest I start? Um. So. There's two threads you have to remember as a marketer. Like there's the paid media, so advertising on YouTube. Those are those are ad type videos, and and that's probably worth spending some money in creating those with some agencies and stuff. But then you have to you have to think about the organic strategy, the uh, the social media, the content management, and all that stuff. And uh, making videos part of the content management strategy, getting a tool like Pictory is going to be in. Invaluable for you because you can do a lot of different things. You can repurpose your existing things, but start with that thought first. Is just repurposing. Take content you have already because you already have a bunch of blogs and you already have a bunch of scripts, texts that you know that work. Uh, you already have videos, webinar videos that that you've recorded, things that grab attention, and start start repurposing that for different media for shortening it perhaps creating 20 second clips out of it um and uh, so so just like th that's how for the marketing use case i would i would recommend is you know think about it as part of your content marketing strategy as your seo strategy and and think about it as repurposing and get tools that can help you repurpose like like victory and then of course the Think about how you would do the video ads for YouTube, and because, but that, that's going to be also an important part of this video strategy. And then uh, similar thinking for internal communications, whether you know, as as a CMO, I uh, was always responsible for internal communications. Obviously, work very closely hand in glove with HR and finance and and so forth on those things, training applications, all sorts of applications, and so. If I want to be a company that's regularly enabling my organization, regularly communicating, um, uh, is it a similar line of thought? How, how's it different on the internal side? Um, slightly different. So I actually, we make a distinction between videos where you appear on camera and faceless videos. So um, the recorded videos, a lot of people are comfortable in front of the camera. So if you can get your CEO to do a message uh, in front of a video, I mean, that would be great. Those are those messages are well received. So, uh, so any kind of internal communications that you can have in front of the camera, uh, tools like Zoom and Teams can record all these things and, and you can then use some simple editing tools like Victory to just create again. Again, the point is short snippets, short videos. Post it on Slack, post it on Teams. So, so let me think of a common use case scenario, maybe on a quarterly basis or on whatever basis, CEO of the company wants to address the company, talk about the quarter, talk about a new product, talk about whatever the, you know, the important things are. Um, and so let's say she has a regular all hands. What we could do here is, let, and let's say that all hands is, I don't know, 45 minutes. I'm just going to make it up. Afterwards, we, the marketing slash HR slash comms team, could take that 45 minutes, cut it into three or four pieces, cut those three or four pieces into 20-second to two-minute pictories and release them either all at once or every day for a few days afterwards. So, so if you assume there's some people who are going to want to sit there and consume maybe on a real-time basis or maybe after the case, the entire 45 minutes with the CEO. But the reality is, 
a meaningful percentage of our employees, as much as they might love our CEO, are just not going to fucking do that, right, Vikram? Or it's time zones. Like we talk, we started by talking about how we're all spread out. I mean, I'm I'm in Seattle. I'm not going to do a forty. No matter what time I do that forty-five minute ses- session, <laughs> there are people who are still sleeping. And uh, and so right. yes, absolutely. But that's a great strategy is to is to take that, summarize that in short clips, and and share the short clips. Um, on your um, on on your various internal social apps in this case, um, so that's the face, the recorded video. Um, however, there's a bunch of training material, HR material that is not really, you know, uh, that's just documents today. It's communicated as memos uh, still, and and uh, creating kind of faceless videos from that uh, maybe. A faceless video could have PowerPoint slides, could have um, some some stock imagery, but but those are things that again, using tools like Pictory can make it very very easy for you to create from written content. So so turn written content into videos. It makes the employee handbook much easier to read. Yes, and and, and this is maybe an overly selfish question, but. As somebody who doesn't want his face all over the internet all the time, and some CEOs are leaders, but they don't want to have their face all over the place. Like if you look at uh, an example, we could all sort of look towards. If you look at uh, Tim Cook versus Steve Jobs, you know Steve clearly liked being in the media and and was very powerful at it, and and it was a big part of him and what drove the company. Tim doesn't seem to ha- have that same desire, skill set, whatever you want to talk about, he does it. And when he does it, I think he does an incredibly professional and compelling job. But he's not the sort of, Steve Jobs had a little bit of P.T. Barnum in him. And I say that with tremendous love and respect. And so for for certain CEOs, for certain marketers, for certain people, maybe they're not hiding, but at the same time, they don't need to be all over the fucking internet like, you know, Gary VD or somebody. And so What's the effective uh, sort of, how should I think about videos, particularly if I don't want to be the center of all the videos? Um, yeah, so I, I the way I see it is then, then the podcast format is actually really nice, the audio only, but then audio only is not easily distributed in all the channels. So putting some kind of a, a video around it, even even waveforms or something that uh, with, with the transcription, uh, is is useful and uh, and that's uh, that I feel like that format works great. But I, I I think it's still important for people to hear the voice, right? So it shouldn't be completely voiceless either. So faceless, yes, voiceless, no. And then like of course there'll be like the written communication is still always going to be a, a prevalent form of of communication for the future. But it, it's. It's different degrees yes. of impact. Now, is there anything, if we sort of go back to your entrepreneur hat for a sec, is there anything you'd want to share with me about, you know, obviously your multi-time entrepreneur that is different that you'd want other entrepreneurs to know about kind of um, starting and growing an AI startup as, a composed to, as, as opposed to other kinds of startups that you've been involved with in the past? I think with the AI startup world, one of the things I've realized uh, as I'm building Pictory is the number of things that are just available to you, either as open source or as APIs. And uh, and this wasn't the case before. In my previous startup that we did in in the in like 20, 2005, six timeframe, the, there wasn't as much available components we, we used we used to call them components it, it's just not available but now everything is there's so much available and ai models don't need to be often trained by you because somebody's already trained it now you can just fine tune it right that's that's the other beauty of this and uh, um, another advice i mean from the ai world like this is actually something we're doing today is uh, gpt4 has it's it's awesome we call it God, uh, and our, our AI team call it calls it God. But they they use it to generate training data almost for for new models. So so you build you use an LLM, 
maybe an open source LLM or perhaps one of the GPT-3 lower cost uh, LLMs, but you train it with output from GPT-4 and, uh, and you get the best of both worlds. You really get cost effectiveness of running an open source LLM, but you get, uh, you get the training data provided by God. And, uh, and so those are like, those are some of the techniques that I, I feel like, you know, entrepreneurs can benefit from. It's such a powerful insight. And maybe I could play with you on this one a little bit. I think there's a, uh, a new languaging that needs to get created here, but here's the aha. And when I personally had this aha, my head exploded. When you understand the difference between structured data, unstructured data, data in motion, data at rest, a database, a data warehouse slash data lake. So we all grew up with all of these things, data models, all of that. So many of us grew up, we understand all these things. It's like like, uh, water to us, we understand it. The breakthrough of late is the understanding of what training data for AI means. And I have not, Vikram, become effective at describing this because it takes me a while to have people have their the light go off in their head but basically the the insight is once you understand there's a data set and that even if that data set was closed that is to say is not ingesting new data from other sources the ai ml on top of it is going to not only extract learnings and capabilities from that data, but those learnings will then create new data that it then gets, quote-unquote, trained on. And it creates a virtuous circle of, of, of learning and mining and creating and learning and mining and creating. And, and if you understand that and you understand the exponential nature of the network effect of the internet and the cloud, and you put those two together, there's this aha that says, holy fuck, there is an exponential breakthrough happening in our intelligence because of this idea of AI training data. And once you understand that you're using an application, be it yours or any other, that is predicated on this training data concept, this training data architecture that means the software gets smarter and smarter and smarter, not only because it's ingesting new things, but it's also creating intelligence on top of what it's ingesting. Right. Yep. That's a mind-blowing unlock for people. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, I think like the uh, – I, I read somewhere that like GPT-N, GPT-5, 6, I mean – it'll be trained on everything that is there out there, right? So it's trained right now on the entire internet, but in a couple of years, it would have taken everything that is out there and and there would be no more training data for it to to train on. But the concept that you're talking about, which 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 is also what kind of I started with is like, you know, the training data could actually come from, it's simulated training data. And we're simulating scenarios, and we're creating uh, scenarios that that GPT is providing. However, in the the example that I gave was was more task specific training data. So, as an example, a task could be summarize this article for me in hundred words, and that's your task. You give it to GPT for it does a really good job at summarizing it, right? So that's that task, and because it's been trained on the entire internet. Uh, it, it does that task really well. Now, that task for for that task to run in real time for for performance reasons, you don't need GPT four level compute and 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 huge resources and API cost to to run that. You can run that specific task of summarizing something into hundred words in a much smaller, maybe even in your mobile device a model that can run that is cheap and local and 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 it's secure because you're not having to send your data over to the gpt all the time so so but you've used that gpt to to fine tune that small model for that specific task so 
So there's, I mean, we talked about two different issues. One is like, you know, okay, the, the whole LLM intelligence can be improved by simulated data, but but also for specific tasks, you can have smaller LLMs that that perform just as well by 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 using training data from larger models and running it in in smaller places. It's so exciting. Now, is there anything else you want to touch on, be it about uh, how to build an AI startup, how to use AI video, or frankly, anything else? <laughs> I think we've talked about a bunch of different things. And I, I mean, if I were to leave with a message in general in life, in building a startup, in getting to use videos for content marketing, it's basically, I love Nike's slogan of just do it. Because that's like, you know, just get shit done, get stuff out there and uh, and then learn and then iterate fast. Sage advice, Vikram. Anything else? That's it. Thank you. Well, thank you, brother. It's really inspiring what you're doing. It's very exciting. And I can't wait to continue to see uh, you and, uh, and your team continue to be uh, incredibly successful. Go get them. And we'll be using your category uh, definitions and building... Our, our own categories um, based on those learnings. Well, good. I hope it, it provides a uh, radically unfair competitive advantage. <laughs> it will, yes. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, brother. That was the legendary Vikram Chalana, founder and CEO of Pictory.ai. You can find him at, you guessed it, Pictory.ai. We'd like to thank you. And if you enjoy these oddcasts, why not share this on social media right now? Word of mouth is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. So please share this oddcast. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts contain nuts. All rights disturbed. Your website is the first impression you make on customers. If you're a B2B tech company, check out our friends at Atre.net. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And if you care about your people building deep connections at work, check out our friends at GetAirspeed.com today. That's GetAirspeed.com. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you hear here today. Everything is the way it is because somebody changed the way it was. Please be kind and rewind. Vote! Let's make crime illegal in America. Produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. If you're in tech, and if you like tech and are a little grumpy, check out my podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Our website and technical wizardry is provided by Saranox and Jamie J. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm in Dolby ADHD. Dave Grohl was right. Listen to Katie Lang. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies go to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, Sammy, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different. <laughs>